You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I think that I felt that there could be performance in every man, that every man could perform his life or his situation or his trauma or his successes or his failure. We're troubled people in a troubled universe. We have to find our way. And how you find your way through the tragedy, it's all tragedy, wouldn't you say? It's more tragedy than comedy. Of course, yes. You knew what would be both important and entertaining to the viewer. And I think that's why you have 26 Academy Awards. The autopsy shows were great. It's really hard to have a vision that nobody ever had before that then becomes successful. But that's the only fun for me. To me, autopsy was the darkest. Because to see that your your body was chopped meat, I realized we were made of chopped meat. I realized that what was human was um, consciousness only. That the rest of us was just matter. That changed my life. That autopsy changed my life. Yeah, it changed my life. I just saw the human body for what it was. It was this miracle of plumbing. It was incredible. It had pipes and it had organs and it was like, I mean, I hate to say this, it was a little bit like my toilet or my stove. It was just incredible. So the only thing left was ideas. The only thing that could possibly lift you from material things was imagination. Well, let's find out. Why aren't you running HBO? I'll tell you why I'm not running it. Can you say vagina here? Yes. That's why. Indochino is making it easy to get a perfectly tailored suit at an incredible price. And you can choose from hundreds of top quality fabrics and personalize your suit just the way you want it whether it's for work, a wedding, or another special occasion. Indochino has suited up hundreds of thousands of men and now the largest made-to-measure menswear brand in the world. Now, the James Altucher Show listeners can get Indochino's best deal ever at $359 for any premium suit when you enter the code JAMES during checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. Plus, Shipping is free. That's Indochino.com, promo code JAMES, for any premium suit for just $359 and free shipping. An incredible deal for a suit that will fit you better than anything off the rack ever could. Um, but I always knew I could do the next thing. Yeah, but I never did. pushed for it. Why do you think that is? You could easily have used your eye to do all the original programming, to do I know, all of it. but why the... didn't I do it? Maybe you just love the documentaries. No, no, that's not true. I then, was... then why didn't you, like, why is a, why is... I, I mean, you don't know what it's like to be a woman in this business of my age. I mean, I'm in my 70s, I'm an old lady. And the thing is, 
I watched people move up. I started with everybody. Um, I, I, I couldn't have run Time Warner, but I think I could have run HBO. Totally could have run HBO. You are, HBO is a real brand company. That so was you, building you, itself from the inside up. Right. Not from the outside in. Which means the brand itself, you, you're, I'm looking at HBO. You were the brand. Am I that fat? No. <laughs> HBO was a lean machine. So yeah. you and you and Michael Fuchs were yes. were HBO. Yeah. And that was where the brand came from. But you know, I'll tell you the difference. Michael had the arrogance that men have who are successful. And yeah. I had the timidity that women have that are good at what they do. But you, you, you it wasn't timidity. You it were, is timidity. But you were, I was you were, afraid that I would lose what I had. You, you had an, uh, maybe an eccentricity yes. that someone like Jerry Levin or Jeff Yeah, but I didn't wear a suit and tie. That's why I've decided right. to wear the same clothes every day. I, I was a, it was hard to promote a woman then. Very difficult. The only way I made more money, and you never make money at a company really. Yeah to break out and do your own thing, which I never did. But I think the only way you get a, a promotion is when there's a tum- any kind of tumult or any kind of revolution and you know they can't lose you, then you go and ask for more money. Yeah, And yeah. then you ask for a promotion. But you never ask for their job. Yeah, they, no one wants to ever pay anyone more than they make. That's never, the rule. Never. You could Would have you? included that in your five rules. <laughs> so, my five rules were my tricky role. because I didn't really go full force in my rules. Well, we'll add to them should write the rules. I thought I should write an addendum. I should write about Harvey and I should write about advancing. Yeah. Because it's a different world now for women. I think that the whole Harvey experience has cleaned the slate to start all over. And it's been happening in every industry because it happened in Silicon Valley also. It's yes. a lot of, um, yes. I mean, Why? nothing as serious Why? as Harvey. What do they want from us? It's not our fault we have a vagina and a womb, is it? Well, are you blaming us? No. Okay. You know, uh, I'm the last person. I'm, I can't. <laughs> I can't hold on to a wife. So, well, maybe your wife doesn't want to hold on to you. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I'm a good guy. You do. Yeah. But maybe you're too smart for a wife. I don't know. I want a wife. You do. Yeah. I know a very brilliant woman who said to me. I told her what I was doing today, and she said, "Is he married?" And I said, "I don't know. I don't yeah, know no. anymore." Um, She's lovely. What's your name? I want to tell you. All right, all right, and uh, and we're I'll, we're on. So I'll give you all, her number at the end. That was all recorded too, so we're keeping that. I on don't the mind anything. I have. I'm uncensored. <laughs> Same here. I don't. Uh, I don't have. I once had a boss who said to me, "You never have an unexpressed thought," and I said, "Is that a good thing or a bad thing?" And he said, "I'm not sure." Well, I think it's a good thing. And, well, because and we're you have the same it. thing. But also, I know from my experience with you. So, so I'm going to introduce you. Okay, everyone's listening. So, okay. I am. This is a special day out of all <laughs> the hundreds of podcasts I've done. I've got the most incredible guest, who's a personal hero of mine, Sheila Nevins. I'm going to give a big intro, Sheila. So hold, hold okay, on a second. I'll, listen. I'll actually just say hi. You for won't a embarrass me. <laughs> well. First off, you wrote a book. Yes. But I'm going to get to the book in a second. I want to describe your, why you're, why people should read this book. Among many, many things, I think you're the inventor, the creator of reality TV. Um, there's been now a billion hours of horrible reality TV out there. You actually were creating good reality TV and everything, I think, sort of spun out of that. You're, you've run HBO documentaries for decades. You're the president of HBO Documentary Films. You've won 26 Academy Awards for documentaries you've produced. Everyone has seen 
some documentaries that you've produced because there are, there, there are so many incredible ones. You know what my favorite documentary was on HBO ever? High on Crack Street. Great. It's a great one. Great documentary. And then Taxi Cab Confessions, of course, the very first episode the where, where it first. ends with the violin and oh, the cab. Oh, wasn't he great? We oh. found him at Port Authority. That was a poem. Wasn't he the great? It was a poem. Did, did you ever see the one with the mortician who talked about people who defile dead bodies? And uh, that when uh, someone comes into the room and says something about the dead body, he's, he, it was like Shakespeare. He said, you know, this, is, this was once a living person. This was someone's relative. This was someone's heart. Was that an autopsy? No, it was in taxi cab. He oh, got into a taxi cab and he was a mortician. Huh. And the, the driver asked him what it was like. Was it demoralizing or debra- you know, did he feel debased by touching dead bodies all the time? And he said, this was someone's mother. This was some, it was like Yorick. It was like a last year, you know, it was so gorgeous. So, and it was, oh, it was incredible. It was incredible. But I, I feel like, I feel like you basically, like, I grew up thinking of documentaries as these boring Oh, they films. were. Oh, my God. I did and, those, too. And you made documentaries. You were the first person to do this. You made documentaries entertainment. You were, the, yes. for, for a long period of time, you were the you were the gatekeeper for for quality documentary makers. I mean, you made you created the careers of so many super successful documentary filmmakers, and and so so many things. I'll just I'm sure if I read just some of these, like you're the most uh, one that was super famous was the Jinx, the the documentary about Robert Durst, and he basically confessed to the crime on. You're uh, on on camera. In the bathroom, yes. uh, yeah, uh, you did going clear on Scientology. So these are just some more recent ones that. But have these been... were great filmmakers, Jurecki and Alex. You know, Alex Gibney. I mean, I didn't necessarily initiate everything. I just but, my heart skipped a beat at the idea of them. Right, but I think your heart skipping a beat is what created the modern documentary. <laughs> Possibly true, and, but also my sense of boredom. I'm easily bored. I, I, I know because I remember, well, we're, we'll get into it. I've pitched shows to you and we've worked together on on at least one show, which I remember all the details of. So we'll we'll, we'll get to them. I also want to um, talk about, you wrote a book and I picked it up like, oh, Sheila Evans wrote a book. I saw it in the bookstore. I picked it up and started going through it. And it was really good. Like wow. I was actually super surprised because I know you as being of course, ultra creative, and and you have such a great eye for talent. But then, when you put pen to paper, these are real literary short stories. It's a good book. So it's called "You Don't Look Your Age and Other Fairy Tales" by Sheila Evans. So I'll say it again: You don't look your age and other fairy tales. By the way, you don't look your age. You're seventy nine. You're still going strong at age seventy eight. Give 78. me a break. All right, I'm sorry. Oh my god! I, I didn't. Ate, I, I give just me a year. A year. <laughs> So, and you're still going strong at HBO, right? So I'm going strong, yeah. You came down here for this podcast. Thank you. And what makes this... Do you think I'd be with a walker? No, of course not. Although, so why do you think it's so odd that I came down for a podcast? Well, because... You have this great producer and I, I think, I'm mobile. I think, I think you're so... You know, and again, I've had a lot of But I remember guests. you, but I remember you. I remember you as a burgeoning talent, and somehow when HBO lost you, I felt, you know, everything gets into your heart eventually. I felt a loss. Well, I, I, felt, I felt a loss too because I loved, that's the last company I've worked at was HBO, and it's kind of the only company I've ever worked at, and it's a great... How did I find you? How did I well, find you? Well, I was doing, 
this 3 a.m. idea for HBO's website where I would go out on a Tuesday Was that your idea or my idea? My idea. Oh, I would like to take it as mine. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I was free to give it to you. I uh, So I somehow or other, I pitched it to you. I forget, maybe it was through Nancy or maybe it was through John something or other. Hoffman? Um, I totally forget. He didn't stay there long afterwards. And Oh, John Moss. Yeah, yeah. Somebody, I, I pitched it up through somebody and it got to you. Why, why didn't you come to me? Uh, maybe I did. I, I totally forget how how it happened. And it was uh, only twenty years ago. I don't it was know. twenty. It was nineteen ninety six <laughs> or ninety seven. And I was going out every Tuesday, or Wednesday night, interviewing people at three in the morning. Cause Saturday <sighs> nights are boring, but a Tuesday night. Oh, it's fabulous. So something oh bad is always happening. Always bad. Uh, on at three more three in the morning always on a Tuesday bad. night. Always and, bad. And I was doing it for a while for the HBO website, and then somehow. Um, I pitched it to you and you you love the idea and you said shoot this as a pilot and you hooked me up with a great producer and uh, John Alper and we we were off to the races we were shooting for like a year or so yeah. and I can see you at was it Rikers yeah Rikers with, we went with to guys coming off a bus yeah that yeah. was that was a, a beautiful segment we were doing um, like homeless kids in the East Village we were doing male prostitutes in the meatpacking district back when they were back when it was a meatpacking district. Yeah. And we had... And guys had, with shopping carts putting bags in it of food from garbage cans. Yeah, yeah. yeah it we was had, great. We it had, was great. I can see it. You, you, And then we showed you the first half. You loved it. Uh, gave us money for the second half. And I'm not blaming anyone. I think... I, I I think John was excited about getting his friends playing hockey at three in the morning, which wasn't quite the the <laughs> He's same. He's still essence. excited. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> about his friends playing and, hockey. And you're you're you didn't like that segment. And your quote was, <laughs> uh, "I'll tell you the quote because it's really funny." Um, you said for for material, and you were totally correct. For material like this, you either have to show uh, somebody. You either have to film your uh, neighbors fucking or someone shooting your their mother while naked and I pro that sounds like me and and you were right uh like so so we didn't quite make the cut for 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 the air I I, I wish we had more more chance well, I to think do it, it but. was a good idea I think if 3 a.m was sort of a witching hour for me because if you ever you don't really go out at 3 a.m because you're scared so I thought there would be scary things at 3 a.m things that were hidden in the other 21 hours of the day. You know, there, there would true. be something from from like 2.30 to 5.30 that would be the mystery of the city. I would uncover something really uh, dark. I wanted something dark in the real world. Prostitutes going home, you know. Um, and we, we I had all that. It. I wanted it. You did have right. it. You did have yeah, it. Yeah, and then I think... I don't know what happened with it. I think maybe it was a little raw for, for the establishment then that I was working with because I don't think I'd done real sex yet. No, you, you had done real sex. And, oh, uh, I was doing Yeah, it. Oh. and um, you were even thinking of it. Uh, you told me you were even thinking that maybe this, because real sex was sort of being, or was already played out a little bit at that point. Tired, and you were yeah. thinking maybe this would uh, replace it. I think I made a strategic mistake and I'll tell you what it is. Yeah. I had another idea and I didn't pitch it to you. Well, now's the time. <laughs> well, well, well. I pitched it at that time to HBO Independent Productions. Dave, something or other, starts with his last name starts with a B. Um, Baldwin. No, um, Bartsky. I want to say. I don't know. Um, anyway, I don't think you like that I pitched it to another division. You mean I? I that doesn't sound like me. I, I and then and what it was was it was called I called it Blind Date. There's since been another show called Blind Date, and um, uh, it was. 
I would wire up a restaurant and I had a friend of mine ask guys out on blind dates and we would record the date without the guy knowing. And I, I think you thought it was a little mean. Is Well, it was mean that the, I don't like to be mean to my subjects. Yes. I don't like them to know something I don't know. I want them to teach me something I don't know. You see the That's difference? That's really interesting. I, I, yeah. No, I don't know. Tell, explain the difference to me. Well, I mean, I think the person has to go in it into a docu with almost the total information of what the truth is of that docu. If they fuck up in the process of it, that's okay. But they have to go in with a fair game. Why? Because because wouldn't you say because you don't want to manipulate you don't want to manipulate people to the point where they're not themselves or they're performing for you but, because but, they know what you want. But if they don't know at all, they're being filmed. Isn't that more the truth? I don't think I've ever done that. I don't think I've ever filmed. I, the only time I did that was in Taxi Cab, and we probably lost more rides than we gained because. Uh, New York is a one-consent state, which means um, the per person being interviewed has to to agree. You can tape and then get permission afterwards. You can't do that in many other states. It's a two-party right. consent state, so you have to tell the person beforehand. So you don't, you can't do taxicab confessions because no one's going to confess if they know they're going to confess. So that was the only time that I really felt badly for the person in the cab. And we probably lost... 50% of the rides because the person said, hey, well, first of all, sometimes they were people I knew with a hooker. And so I thought, oh, well, you know, Mr. X can't possibly be known to be in the hooker. And when the taxi driver would turn around and say, oh, by the way, Mr. X, you're, uh, we're going to give you a release to sign. You've been on taxi cab confessions. The next morning, 10 famous lawyers would call us. And, you know, um, but I didn't mind that so much because the person had the right to refuse and the right to say no. And many, many people said no, and it was a great lesson to me. But I like when the person knows. They know that you're there because their daughter died of some strange disease, and they don't know what it is, and they're trying to find it out. Or they don't know why their kid committed suicide. Or they don't know. They really don't know. They're not pretending. I don't like pretending. Right, and I think... I don't I, like pretending. I think when and you, I don't like withholding information. So, so, so... So like, for instance, with this blind date idea, we were right. clearly withholding information until the end. Then we'd get a release form signed. Right. But, but I guess you, it was all right. But I, the guy might make a fool of himself. He might feel... Oh, he did every time. Yeah, but he'd feel less of himself. So then you're capitalizing on somebody else's feeling like a piece of shit. Yeah. I don't like that. Oh, I think that's what separates your... Like I said, I think you... I think Tax Gap Confessions really started the genre of reality TV. I mean, I think there were one-offs, like 7-Up and all those things beforehand. Yes. But um, you making Tax Gap Confessions kind of a series and a franchise really you know, started the idea. I of stole from you. If you came first, I'm not sure. But I knew that the idea originally came. It was not my idea to film in taxi cabs. But there was a small camera, and you could hide it. And I thought, where can I hide this camera? Someone came to me with a daytime taxi cab, mm. and it was um, it was so boring. I mean, it was you no, know. No night is where everything happens. No, and because of three a.m. and I don't know, I could be doing the dates wrong, but there was something mysterious about dark. And this film was in light because they were making a PG thirteen kind of um, syndicated television show about people who take taxis in New York or whatever, and it was too cute. And it wasn't right. And then somehow I was infiltrated with the darkness. And I thought, if we take that taxi and we go out at night, maybe we'll get mystery and sex. And we did. Well, I we think did. I think that kind of, that's what you did 
for documentaries. You took it out of like... I took it out of daylight. Uh, yeah, you took it out of like, <laughs> oh, let's find weird ants in the Amazon jungle. No, and, I hate and, ants in the Amazon. And, and let's... let's. <laughs> I think you really explored uh, uh, the darkness of the American dream. I love the darkness. Through, through, through all of your documentaries. Yeah. And, and the American nightmare, not just the dream. And, and I remember going into your office and like... You were kind of, you were, I mean, you you love me. Yeah. I want to take you home. <laughs> you were, when I'm feeling, if I had you, I wouldn't need a psychiatrist. You, you were, well, you were, <laughs> funny enough, you were lying on your couch one time. and just <laughs> Looking like, for a psychiatrist. Just like everything you would say would be like, a, like you knew what would be both important and entertaining to the viewer. And I think that's why you have 26 Academy Awards for producing well, all these amazing. But not only good 1,700 documentaries. 1700 documentaries yeah no i haven't i haven't been part and parcel of every one but i put my finger on everything sometimes one finger sometimes two sometimes a hand sometimes my whole body i just squeeze it to death it depends it depends what it's about i mean i think you have this real eye for identifying i, I don't know and you still do for identifying what is talent what is entertaining like how did you get that how did you get so smart? So how did how did how you, did you get so smart? No, no. Well, I've followed people like you. <laughs> you did not. So yeah, if you no, followed, I then I'd be as rich as you are. No, no, no. <laughs> I, who knows how rich you are? I don't know. I'm not I, as rich as you are. Uh, we'll we'll compare bank accounts <laughs> later. I uh, want to see your bank account. I'll show you mine. <laughs> did you, I bet you I never. Feel like this were is you like ever a in a Christmas club? You know those stupid Christmas clubs? No, because you're too young. But I used to put. I think it was. $10 a week. No, it was $5 a week. And then at the end near Christmas, you could take it out. And one day I realized I wasn't getting any interest on it. So I never was in a Christmas club again. Yeah. So maybe I am as smart as you. Yeah, you could be. I could be that I realized a Christmas club was a jip. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so how did it all start? How did you, I, I know you were on and off at HBO okay, for a while. Okay, okay, how did it start? Okay, and, so and by where, way, how far back do you want to go? To my birth? No, no. I want to also just say, yeah. between you, like, it, HBO was like this nexus of talent that then spread to the rest of it. Like original programming didn't exist until HBO. Right. And then it's suddenly now every channel has it in large part because people from HBO ended up at Absolutely. Every, like Absolutely. Matt Blank created show, yes, all the original yes, programming yes, at yes. Showtime. Frank Biondi off to Viacom. Yes. Even Chris Albrecht at Stars. Yes. Even the people who make House of Cards. Colin, they're Colin all, Calendar, everybody. Where, where's was, Colin Calendar now? He's making millions of dollars. He's working with J.K. Rowland. He's doing the Harry Potter thing that's coming into town. Okay. He's a good guy to talk to. Yeah. Tough. Ooh, did we fight. Tough, but, but uh, so smart. And he was able to bring theater into television. And my background was theater. So it seemed to me that the common man was his own performer, that I didn't need an actor to tell his story. Yeah. Since all fiction would be based on fact anyway, where are you going to get your ideas from? You know, unless you're doing some science fiction thing, and then it's about daydreaming outer space in some way. But I think because my background was theater, I'd gone to the Yale Drama School, I majored in directing, I'd been at the High School of Performing Arts, I was a dancer. I think that I felt that there could be performance in every man, that every man could perform his life or his situation or his trauma or his successes, or his failure. And I do what, have that what, success. But, but you know, I mean, it, I like to know what people do. I like to know what school they went to. Because I think that everybody, not everybody, I mean, there are boring waiters, but there are sometimes in the 10 waiters that are in a restaurant, one that has an extraordinary story. Extraordinary story. Maybe he's stealing. 
Maybe he's putting, maybe he's not reporting all his tips. Maybe when at the end of the day, when they divide them among the 10 waiters, he doesn't take all the money on the table. Everybody has a devious side. Everybody has a magnanimous side. We're troubled people in a troubled universe. We have to find our way. And how you find your way through the tragedy. It's all tragedy, wouldn't you say? It's more tragedy than comedy. Of course, yes. I don't know, does Shakespeare write more tragedy? tragedy. Comedy comes from tragedy. It comes from the happy ending of what probably in real life could be a sad ending. I mean, mean, comedy comedy is almost a safe way to discuss tragedy. Yes, So it's a way for people to release that tension and anxiety inside themselves through laughter. The saddest people are usually comedians. I mean, the most fucked up people are usually comedians. Think about think about HBO's brand in the beginning when it was you. Um, you had Michael Fuchs for, for almost from the sports side, but then right. originally Chris Albrecht who came from the comedy side. It was right. sports, comedy, and your darkness that and my created darkness. HBO. I think it is darkness. I think the darkness is really important. And also, I had read so many books in college about sex. And I didn't understand why docus never were about sex. There was never any sex. It was always like PG-13 or for 1%, I don't mean financially, but intellectual. You yeah. had to be smart. You had they to read, were boring. You had to read the front page of the New York Times. Oh, apologies to my friends at the New York Times. You had to, you had to be in with the day. You couldn't be in with the experience of being alive. And um, I thought it was a great opportunity. I saw that the... The uh, narrative movies the, were doing very well, like Bob and Ted and Carol and Alice was about divorce and swinging. I thought, ah, divorce and swinging. Why am I doing Winston Churchill? doesn't make sense. Nobody's watching Winston Churchill. Everybody's watching Bob and Ted and Carol and Alice. Well, and you said in one interview that you would look at what the popular movies were because that's where you would— Yes, Clearly yes. there was demand. Yes, but I'm so competitive that I didn't want anyone to win. And I would look at these ratings we had then. I think you were there then, called TSS— Total subscriber satisfaction. We were too small to have Nielsen's. And I saw sex, violence, dark, me. Sex, violence, dark, Sheila. And I thought, why can't I migrate those ideas into, you know, like Jaws was very popular. And I thought it was a brilliant movie. And I thought, why don't I scare them? Why don't I scare them, real people? Why do I have to tell them that Winston Churchill's father didn't love him? You know, why do I have to do Hitler's Youth? Somebody else can do that. I'll do Scare. I'll do Jaws. I'll do Being by the Beach and not knowing, you know, all these terrible things that can happen. I'll do The Birds that Pick Up Your Dog and Take It Away Forever. I'll do that. I won't do good and sweet and kind and intellectual. And I didn't. I don't do good and sweet and kind and intellectual. I do hot and saucy and mean. You were head of HBO kids programming for, uh, you probably still are. Yes, and I'll tell you, you want to know why? I'll tell you why. Because I had, my first job was to write a script for Sesame Street. And, um. I didn't know that. Yeah, my very first. I wrote scripts. It was fun. And then I worked on a show called Feeling Good for them, and it was was okay. I'm sorry, Joan Cooney. She's one of my great mentors, if, if one has a mentor. But the point Um, about children was that I felt that they were getting gypped by the kind of programming that was out there. It was all twinkle, twinkle, little star. So I did something called brain games in which the audience would participate. There were no computers then. So you had to say what was wrong with this picture. So Ben Franklin was, um, you know, doing something legislative, banging his thing, and an airplane would go by. And the kid had to yell out what was wrong with that picture. Mm. 
And a lot of them said that he was mean. But many of the smart ones said there were no airplanes then. So we did this thing called Brain Games, and it was so much fun because we would sneak in all kinds of strange things that shouldn't be in the picture. We did. We called it Who's a Whatchamacallit. We did a lot of stuff. I thought instead of buying other people's brands, you could create in your brand, as you have, your own ideas. There are two ways of business. I've never been to business school, but I've always thought to myself, there's two ways. One is you buy other brands. I saw that in something called Tapestry and reading the business times. I don't know why. And it was like four companies that all got together under one umbrella. And then I thought, that's sort of like HBO today in the sense that we buy Vice and we buy Sesame Street um, and we buy other people's brands and incorporate them into a brand. That's one way of being successful. I never understood that. I thought you take the brand, you're a business person and a creative person, you take the brand and you create your own um, brands within it. Well, it, seem, it seems like buying the other brands is yeah. the lazy person's way of doing it. I don't know it. if it's lazy, it's for sure. Uh, uh, it's for sure, but I'll tell you why it's lazy because it's really hard to have a vision that nobody ever had before that then becomes successful. But that's the only fun for me. Right, and that's what I feel. That's what yeah. HBO did with, you know, with your brand, you know, the, the darkness in the documentaries. And, and again, Taxi Cab Confessions was probably one of the first sort of modern reality what TV shows. What about Autopsy? Did you ever go to uh, an Autopsy? Uh, uh, the Autopsy shows were <sighs> great. You know, my, my, so I left HBO to do a web a website development company. We made the website for Autopsy, so so I, I watched every Autopsy. Yeah. But the thing is, to me, Autopsy was the most, the darkest, because to see that your your body was chopped meat. Uh, I mean, actually, for two weeks I was a vegetarian, but I got over it very quickly. I went to my first Autopsy, and for two weeks I couldn't get rid of the smell of formaldehyde. Uh. And Doctor Baden had done like 23,000. So he'd say, eh, the liver, here's the inside of her breast. Here's her, you know, there's that, there's that. I realized we were made of chopped meat. I realized that what was human was um, consciousness only, that the rest of us was just matter. That changed my life. That autopsy yeah. changed my life, yeah. Yeah, I didn't because, know that. So, yeah, it changed my life. Going to an actual autopsy of an objective person, and I didn't have any love. I wasn't looking for the answer to a crime. I just saw the human body for what it was. It was this miracle of plumbing. It was incredible. It had pipes, and it had organs, and it was like, I mean, I hate to say this, it was a little bit like my toilet or my stove. It was just incredible. So the only thing left was ideas. So, the so, only thing that could possibly lift you from material things was imagination. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I really am not a suit goer. I sort of associate suits with the uniform of the corporate workplace, but that's before I actually tried out our newest sponsor, Indochino, because it actually fits. The reality is when you get a custom-made suit, it actually makes even me look decent and not as much of a monster. Trust me, trying a made-to-measure suit will change the way you look at clothes and probably even the way you look at yourself, too. Here's how it works. Visit a showroom or shop online at Indochino.com. I went to Indochino's store here in New York City 
They measured my chest, my arms, my legs. It's a good thing I'm not ticklish, but I'm a professional. Pick your fabric. Choose your customizations from lapels to pleats to jacket linings and more. Me, I do not like pleats if you're ever thinking of a gift. Submit your measurements, place your order, and wait for it to arrive in just a few weeks. Now, the James Altucher Show listeners can get Indochino's best deal ever at $359 for any premium suit when you enter the code JAMES during checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. Plus, shipping is free. That's Indochino.com, promo code JAMES, for any premium suit for just $359 and free shipping. An incredible deal for a suit that will fit you better than anything off the rack ever could. So it seems like from your style of documentaries, I don't even want to call them documentaries anymore. It's it's real, uh, it's not just entertainment, but it's it's more than entertainment in the sense that you're not just telling a story, you're teaching this lesson. Like for you, autopsy, yes, there's this kind of dark side of it, like, okay, here's a guy who's a forensic, you know, specialist and does all these autopsies, but then there's this real deeper meaning underneath. Like, you use that kind of um, flashy, oh, it's an, a criminal autopsy to get to this deeper meaning, and I think that happens to a lot of your shows. That's there, interesting. There's a subtle thing that happens. In maybe a, in I'm a, a saint. Do you think I could be sainted? Uh, maybe. The first Jewish saint? Well, well, first, <laughs> let's let's find out why, why aren't you running HBO? So I feel like all the I'll people I'll tell created, you why I'm not running it. Can you say vagina here? Yes. That's why. We already said fuck, so we can certainly say vagina. Can you say cunt? You can say whatever you want. Well, um, I would say that... I think it's easier uh, for you to say that than for me to say that. Okay, I think vaginas don't do as well as penises in the workplace. Do you think, you, you think though, you, did you want to be running HBO? That's such a good question because I never gave myself time to think that thought. I don't know the answer. Did I want to be... Um, probably not. You're probably right. I probably began to love real people and realize that they had the potential to do extraordinary things. And I think that I, I knew how trapped they were by mortality and that in that short span that we all have, that they wanted to make something of themselves no matter what they did, or they wanted to deceive someone or they wanted to murder someone See, or they wanted to stories. love someone. Right, telling those real I stories. I love it. I love what, that. Is, I think I got hooked. I think when I started, I wanted to rule the world. I think when I drew the circle around docus, I saw that they were forever and that there was the potential to do sex programming with real people uh, and hot programs. There was an attempt to do murder. There was an attempt to do goodness and religiosity. And, and um, I mean, look at Scientology. Look at how you can be misled into thinking because you are so guilty about who you are that you can be misled into this craziness. Smart people. Um, and so that's the, telling those real stories. Yeah. You can't really tell through as well through fiction, never, I don't think. Never, never. And the point is once you get trapped in the reality hole of exceptional behavior, you can't really step out of it. I, I think that... As much as I'd like to blame my vagina, I don't think I can. I think my mind said, oh, my God. You know, it's like I, I keep thinking of Treasure Island. I unburied this treasure of human experience. I'm not going to give it up to fiction. I think that's probably the truest and, and, I can and be. And also, yeah. you didn't want to give it up to management. So, Well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't 
I was free for a long time to do whatever I wanted no to do. No one's going to touch you. Uh, no, no HBO. one wants to touch me. No, they don't want to touch me. I must be like a leper. <laughs> I'm a successful leper. No. Are lepers ever successful? Uh, uh, maybe ones that. Did you Jesus ever read touched? like in somebody's book thing? Uh, once a leper, and now you know, president of you know. No, I don't know. You know, because no, I, I was I untouchable. That... I was untouchable, but I was hurtable. Why were you hurtable? Because I was very sensitive about my shows. And when someone didn't like them or didn't want to do one, someone I might work for, um, I suffered. I felt who, badly. But who, after, and this gets into the weeds a little bit of HBO's uh, background, but after Chris Albrecht, who could possibly make a decision that would override you in terms of like money made the decision. decision? Money makes decisions. Yeah, but your stuff made money. Yes, I know, but if you took... If you if you looked at the money and you said most of it should go into fiction and not enough into the real world, or that the real world would mean fame, famous people, not ordinary people, that was a dis that's an executive decision and it's perfectly fine. But it leaves out the common man. But I don't think even people realize how many of your documentaries influenced. HBO's most popular TV shows. Like, I remember well, Five I, Corners I think, created The Wire. Yeah, I think Nobody that's knows true. That. And also, Oz was created from our prison shows. Um, but, but no, I don't think anybody knows Maybe that. Six Feet Under came out of Autopsy. I don't even know that. Maybe could've, that was true. Maybe, but Carolyn's so smart, she could have figured that out by herself. No, I think we did stimulate... Look, I, who knows where ideas come from? I think we did stimulate a certain kind of affection for the future of ordinary people's stories, and that may have led to truthful fiction as opposed to fiction from the sky, if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah. You know, that it birthed a certain thing. But I mean, I'm not an inventor. I didn't invent the cotton gin. I mean, I like that you love me, but I don't... You may be giving me too much credit. No, but take, take a look at, like, what happened... At, I would say, let's look at both HBO and MTV, because HBO had, at the same time, and this is like mid-'90s, HBO had Taxi Cab Confessions, MTV had The Real World, and those were really the first two attempts, very different style attempts very different. At, at reality TV, Right, I think, in the modern sense of it. Yeah. And then it kind of, I feel, degenerated more and more into what we now have as reality TV across many shows, but not HBO. You, you kept it pure on... Well, you see, real, see, I don't think that I changed documentaries because they are fundamentally boring. I don't think I changed bio docs because they were always as famous or as good as the person who made it and the person who they were about. I think what I changed was the potential for the average person who didn't have such an average life. I think I changed that. Well, I, I like think what you I said did before, that. how everybody's got... I think got... I birthed reality TV. What reality TV didn't... This is what happened. They said, hey, HBO's making these documentaries about real people. They're costing half as much as a movie or as, you know, a situation comedy or a series. We should be doing docuseries. So then came reality TV. I think that HBO was responsible for reality TV. I think reality TV didn't necessarily have the faith in those people. So they gave them scripts. It wasn't right. like the $64,000 question, which was way before your time, but, but they gave them the answers. No, I remember the Okay, but they gave the answers. So when you don't have faith in the actual material, you manipulate it in such a way that you make it no longer, it's no longer a quiz show, it's no longer reality TV. It's reality TV in which the housewife is basically doing a script that's already written for her. She may be using her own words, but they say, listen, today you're going to have to leave Johnny and your kid is going to break his leg. 
Okay, right. now act, but you're real. Right, yeah. so it's almost like it's almost like improv reality TV. Yeah, like give- and, and and sometimes it's pretty good, but it's always uh, for me detestable because yeah. I always smell a rat. That's all. So what you're looking for really is you take kind of a high stakes situation, like let's say Scientology, yeah. and you go in there and say, look, let's find out the the everybody. You have this philosophy. Everyone's got. A, a, a secret, or un, underneath any high stakes situation, there's a there's a dark edge we don't yes, know, yes. and let's the documentary kind of closes the gap between that high stakes concept and that darkness. I think so. I it, mean, that's why um, you know something like Scientology is so fascinating, and you have to give these producers credit. I'm happy to take credit for the you know the I'll moon and the stars it. and all that, but I I happen to think that I did not create a lot of these. That I I smelled them as good. You created the home for them. I created the love for them, and it was a it was a love hate home, hate only in the sense that I respect hate as much as love. I love evil. I'm crazy about evil. What's your favorite? I mean, I know this is a, a stupid question because you've yeah. done seventeen hundred documentaries, <laughs> and I know probably people ask you this all the time. They and- do, they do, but I have an answer. You okay. mean what's my favorite documentary? Yeah, I don't. Okay, know okay, I'll it. tell you. All I'll right, tell, tell you me, tell me. because it happens to be true, and I. It shows you how crazy I am. About a week ago, I watched it on demand because I'm crazy and because somebody asked me that question, I thought, is that like a fabricated answer? Did you really mean it? I really mean it. Okay. So I saw on CNN about, I don't know, when was the oil spill in New Orleans? Eight years uh, ago? Yeah, seven years. Something like that. Okay. So I see this oil spill and I think, ah, oh, it's my job. I got to do something about oil, you know, bad people, corporations. What am I going to do? So I saw this pelican on the cover of either National Geo. And then I saw, I mean, I can't tell one pelican from the other, but then I saw a similar pelican on CNN and he was covered with thick oil. And he was little. I remember that photo. Remember that photo? photo? It was a famous photo. It was everywhere. And I thought, what's going to happen to him? Like, is he going to fly? Is he going to die? What's going to happen? So I called up this really lovely producer named Irene Taylor Brodsky, who oddly enough wrote to me about my one story about sleeping with my boss in the book, which is something that nobody wants to talk about except me, obviously, and and Irene. And uh, anyway, I said, Irene, would you go to New Orleans and follow this, um, find a bird that's covered with oil? Because there's a lot of volunteer groups trying to rehabilitate birds and things. And so she went, got on a plane. She lives in, in Washington, state of. Portland, yeah. She got on a plane, went there, and she said, I think I found a bird. I think he's a baby, but I'm not sure. We took him to the rehab place. Well, we followed that bird for nine weeks. And first, in order to take the oil off uh, birds, I don't even like pelicans, by the way, but in order to take the oil off, you almost have to use a Q-tip and very slow, because you don't want to damage the feather, because there's a burgeoning feather there. So... You know, it was kind of like boring in the beginning because I thought, I'm never going to have his wings back. And slowly but surely, they took the thing off his wings. And he was Pelican 895. We just called him, how's 895 doing? Where's 895? What's he up to? And then he was better, but he didn't really know how to eat and he didn't know how to fly. So these young kids who were doing this rehab with a lot of bioscientists, I'm not sure the exact bioethnon, but a lot of the bioscientists, um, had a lot of birds like this. But we 
we had, he had on his leg the 895. So we followed 895. We didn't know what would happen. So first he had to learn to, first, had to, learn to eat. You don't know how to eat. You know you're hungry. But be, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess if a baby has been breastfed, it might not know what to do. It would just die. I mean, you have to give it something. So they gave it food, and slowly it learned to want food, and then it learned to eat. Okay, so that was step one. Step two was how was he going to learn to fly? And so he watched other pelicans kind of fly. And he could fly in a room, but then he would be scared to fly. Is it because he forgot because the oil... He never learned. He was a baby. He He was a young pelican. His mother would have taught him how to fly. Yeah. So, I mean, I had to learn, like, pelicans come out of eggs. They're, you know, I mean, they're birds. I'm a mammal. You know, I I had to go back to school a little bit. Okay, so there was no real film there, except he was better. And he he was pretty beautiful. And so we decided one day to put him back on the shore where he was found to see if he could fly. And we were all on the phone, and the guy who was doing the music, whose name I unfortunately can't remember, said, what kind of ending do you want? You know, I gotta, I gotta, I've got the oil spill, I've got the repair, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what is the ending? And I said, I don't know the ending. I don't know what's going to happen. So this was before we could stream. All on the telephone. Irene is down at the beach. We take the pelican out of his environment, which is sort of a rehab environment. We all get out of rehab at some time. Take him out of rehab, put him on the beach, and watch to see what happens. Because we don't know whether the music is going to be he can't fly, he's scared, he just walks away like a little frog, you know. And this pelican, he must have had an agent, he, he, he flapped his wings a little bit, put them down, and I thought, oh, what's he doing now, Irene? What's happening? He's flapping, he's flapping. Is he going to fly? I don't know. Music guy sitting there on the telephone, speakerphone. He just got off the ground. What did he do? Oh, he lifted his legs and he like got off, but he went back down again. Now he's eating something on the ground. Okay, this went on for maybe two hours on the telephone. And then suddenly, Pelican 895, a bunch of pelicans flying by, flew up and joined the pelicans and flew off with them, and we never saw him again. It's my favorite film. Because first of all, I love Hollywood endings, and this was a Hollywood ending. You know, chances are most pelicans we might have followed, maybe they never would have gotten off the ground, but this one did. And he disappeared into the great wilderness of the sky, and the music, we finally had a Hollywood ending, and the music at the end, it soars up, and it may be too much... Nobody watched this film. Who's going to watch a film called Pelican 895? I mean, let's be real. But it was my favorite. That, that, that's it's great. It's a favorite film. And it it's kind great. of... Um, uh, it's favorite. I favorite. I wish I could find him and thank him for that ending, it, but again, it I don't takes, know where he is. It, <laughs> takes a, it takes a high-stakes story, which is this oil spill, and right. kind of builds a real uh, story around it. And, and I think you mentioned before, everyone's got... A story. I don't think everyone realizes they have a story. I know, then, but and, I'd like to tell them that they do. I mean, that mean, doesn't mean they should call me and tell me they want to make a docu about their life. But um, I, I, I think, in the best of all worlds, everybody would respect their own story. What do you mean by respect their own story? They would feel that their life was worthy of, of you know, that they feel their life was worthy, that they had done the best they could that they were the victim either of circumstance or the recipient of good luck, and that they are dumb or smart very often, not because of their IQ test, but because of the advantages that they've had or not had. I think there is, 
something very special about being human. I mean, we're, we're very highly evolved. We don't exist for very long. We'll probably kill ourselves eventually. I mean, you know, destroy our world. Um, but that we are here, not religious, but we're here and we have something to offer. I think everybody has something to offer. They're just afraid, you know. And I walked home last night, like at 10 o'clock at night, and there were a lot of bag people out. There was someone, Madison Avenue, pretty routine block, fancy stores, and a guy collecting cans um, from one of the, you know. Now, no one who threw that can in that garbage thought that someone could get five cents for it. But, um, you know, the, the shopping cart with the big bag and, you know, just, I wanted to say you're working. I think people who beg are working. I think if someone asks me for money, I always give it to them because I think that's a job. Begging is a job. Um, don't be humiliated by begging. And I think I think we um, I think it's it's natural, particularly in New York City, to 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 ignore completely. Like totally. it's almost invisible. Totally. But but I think when you kind of take this almost spiritual view that everybody has this uh, a, a deeper vein, a story, then you learn to to respect that story inside yes. of everyone. Sometimes you're so embittered by life that you never can tell your story. You know, I saw some woman. Uh, pushing a black woman pushing a white baby on my way home. So that means the parents hadn't come home yet. Cute little baby, cute little woman. But she was on her phone, and she was talking in, and I don't know what language she was talking in, and I realized that there was two different worlds there. She was caretaking at the same time. She was in her own world, and that she must have been angry. So it's, it seems angry, like you... angry because injustice, injustice makes people angry, I think, and make them think, makes them think they have no story. But I know that person gathering those bags had a story. Either they should have been in a mental hospital or they lost their job or they had PTSD or it was just the luck of the economic trade. I don't really know, but, you know, two big bags, plastic bags of nickel each cans is probably a day's salary for some people. Well, and think about all the people who threw away the cans. Then think about it. Th and think a, about it. That's a story, too. They didn't think about it. They're probably writing a $2,000 check to the same charity that he's probably sleeping in that night. It, it's al it's <laughs> almost an interesting thing to have the, the guy with the bag, but then examine where each can came oh, from. Oh, that would be interesting, going back to the can. Yeah. So you sort of like... I never bought a can back for five cents, did you? No. I didn't even know there were machines. I noticed when... There's a machine you put it in and the nickel comes out of the I bottom. I didn't even know that. I have, I have no well, idea where you they get that. You just throw it out. Yeah. Like these, I don't know about this one, but I think yours, you get something back. That's called Probably. recycling. Yeah. We endorse it, we send checks to it, but we don't do it. But but what, so what, it seems to me wherever you look, you see uh, essentially your style of documentary. Yeah. I, <laughs> I do. don't even want to quote, what, do. what, what, can we use a different word than documentary? Because yes. I always think the nature ones. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Or, or the Winston Churchill ones. No. What's your style of, of documentary? That, that's I mean, how many awards have you won? I haven't. Oh, it doesn't uh, matter about yeah. awards. I've been doing the it for thirty five years. Yeah, but if you did something for thirty five years, you would get as many awards. I've never I've I never done anything a, that consistently. You've built up right. a skill. That's right. I blamed it on my vagina, but maybe I liked it all along. You, I think you liked it all along. I don't you think, think you wanted to manage. You, you know, you know, Jeff Bukas, as successful and as great as he was at HBO, was come from came from the accounting side originally, yeah. and he. He was great, but I'm they not good at accounting, and so and that was important. I don't think you wanted to do uh, that. 
No, I don't either. I don't either. I'd like to blame it on my vagina, but I think, in fact, it probably the truth is I'm doing what I should have been doing. Should have been doing. And I'm sure that a lot somehow of- the theater, moving the theater into the streets uh, or the country, uh, wherever I was, was the right was what I was going to do. And, and pulling, yeah. and pulling something that has the arc of a beautiful, yeah. almost fictional story yeah. out of nonfiction. That's what you did. But also the microcosm of the macrocosm of a story. For instance, when we did One Survivor Remembers, my assignment was to. Um, do something about the 50th anniversary of the Second World War. Okay, I, then it was Time Warner, Time Life, and everybody was doing pictures and stuff and all that. I don't know, what am I going to do, get clips from the war? And I had gone to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, and there was survivors. My son and my husband went out. There was no cafeteria there, which is trouble for me. But anyway, they went out, and I was too tired. So I sat there on these benches, and I watched all these survivors go by. And I found this one woman named Gerda Weissman-Klein who had survived the death march, had been rescued by an American soldier who was of German descent, and they married and they had children. And so he was in one part, she was in another. And I thought, instead of doing this like clip show, I'm going to do one survivor, one person. So (laughs) I came back and I said to Michael, um... I think we should do just one survivor. I think I found her, this great woman. And he said, all right. You know, he was great at that. He was really great at all right. Not everybody's great at all right. What do you mean by that? He'd say, all right, do it. Try it. Try it. Then I had a crazy idea of a Hitler youth because my son had said that he wanted to be a Cub Scout. I don't mean to include Hitler youth and Cub Scouts, but he wanted, I said, what do you want to be a Cub Scout for? They don't like babysitters. They want mothers to go to the meetings. I don't have time. He said, no, I want to be a Cub Scout. I want to march in a parade. I want to beat a drum. Okay. So I figured, all right, maybe I can buy him something so he doesn't want to be a Cub Scout. And then I saw a television show called The uh, Fatal Attraction of Adolf Hitler. And sitting on a staircase was a man who talked about being a Hitler youth, and the very proper Englishman said to him, "Um, Hans, 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 what made you want to join the Hitler youth in the 40s? You were how old? He said, 14. And uh, he said, well, I wanted to beat a drum. He said, I wanted to march in a parade. I'm not doing a German accent. Well, I don't know how, thank God. And so um, I found him that German Nazi. His name was Alphonse Heck. It took me a long time to find him because the producer was in Nairobi making another film. I kept calling, calling the BBC, calling, calling. Finally, they said, oh, Alphonse, oh, he's a nice guy. He's a bus driver and in um, San Diego. So I found Alphonse. I went to see him. I got this great guy named Pierre Sauvage who had been a hidden youth to interview him because I didn't think I had the I wasn't existing in the time period and didn't have the emotional reaction to a Hitler youth that I thought Pierre Sauvage had. And he had done a great film on PBS called Weapons of the Spirit. So I brought Alphonse and Pierre together in San Diego. Well, it was probably one of the most interesting experiences of my life because um, he was a good guy, Alphonse. He was just a kid who wanted to beat in a parade and and shoot the enemy. And and, and look look what you did. You... You basically. I like did, one one story. So you like yeah. one story, but let's let's just break that down for a second. Yeah. You went to you were given this assignment that could potentially have been bland, depending on how. Not you did necessarily. It. I saw Not a lot of but, clip shows that were good. I mean, it showed you know a lot of 
horrible things. Sure, but you wanted to put your blood and you, guts. You, you were going to put your imprint on it. Absolutely, one way or the other. my so, imprint. So yeah. you went to the Holocaust Museum. Yeah. You you story started. Uh, it's not like you just observe facts. No, no, you no. Then I went stories. to Phoenix to meet to meet Gerda. I fell madly in love with Gerda. She's nine ninety three years old. Um, I brought Gerda back to the Holocaust Museum to interview her there, and. Um, that became one survivor remembers. Right, and and, and, and then and then you then you um, saw this other thing with the Hitler Youth guy. You yeah. related that in your yeah. brain yeah. to the story of your your yeah. son asking me a cup. God, star. I'm smart. You you, you, yeah. you saw a documentary. You brought brought that filmmaker yes. to San Diego. Yes. and you brought out the story of this bus driver. I had driver. the freedom. I had the freedom, the artistic freedom to follow it. You had the artistic freedom thought. and the artistry. So, I don't know if I had the artistry, but I knew the who people who had the that? artistry. Who else could have done that? I don't know. That's why I'm saying it's not. I it's don't not know. the vagina thing. It's you not. Were, you, oh you, shit! You, yeah. you were. I'll cancel were my gynecologist. Yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. you're a genius. So I'm sure there no, are many. No, I'm not a genius. You're, I'm sure there are many men who have tried. I think I'm a to, humanist. I think I'm not a genius. I can't. Right. I can't do certain things. I think that I have an incredible. First of all, I'm fascinated by Darwin. I mean, if I could have met anybody in my life, it wouldn't have been Jesus or Moses. It would have been Darwin. Why? Because I think we're too evolved. That somewhere in this evolution, we became so involved that we learned how to destroy. I'm not sure we were meant to do that. Although maybe we were, but I would have to ask him about the evolution of the species, which I think is one of the most interesting things. Have you read Sapiens by Yuval no. Harari? No, I should read it. It's very good. Yeah, and he, and he goes it. over this, but... but yeah, but yes. I should read it. I'm so busy doing, I, know, I don't really read enough. It's probably um, better that way. I don't know, but, I, but I, I've always wanted to talk to him. Sometimes I have imaginary conversations with him, which is, what are we doing with our evolution? You know, in other words, what are we evolving into? I think it's an interesting notion. I mean, there's, of course, science fiction and all that, but we're evolving into mean-spirited killers. That's what we're evolving into. And maybe that is evolution. Maybe the animal takes over the human and then eventually destroys itself and then there's a new, a, new, a new world. I don't really know the answer to that. But I've seen more mendacity in the last 10 years in the world and certainly in the last year, two years, uh, than I've ever seen before. I mean, I don't understand cutting off someone's head. I did the James Foley story. I can't understand. I don't understand taking a young reporter and being so angry at America and that you cut off someone's head. I don't really understand that. I read about it in the Crusades. I understand the history. But I thought we'd evolved past that. But obviously not. And But I think what you do then, when you say you're, you're, a, you're doing, is that then you take the next step, which is, okay, let's put together the team that's going to build the story to help us understand. So now it's not only driving the, the business brand of HBO, but also it's it's got your imprint on it. It takes us a step forward in knowledge of what's happening because it's easy to just read a list of facts. It's hard to bring something to life into a story. And I think that's what that's how you evolved the genre. Good. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's true. I think I did that. I think I'm looking for the drama. I'm looking for the microcosm and the drama in the larger story. And I think I, so. I think you do this very well about yourself in your book. And I want to talk about the book in a second. <laughs> but... I think HBO in general, with their whole being the first ne kind of network or channel or whatever to go into original programming, I think what they did that was so special, and and you were a strong part of this, was focus on the talent. 
If you focus yes. on getting great talent to build stories, then the audience will follow. And I don't. I think. I think it was so different from broadcast TV, which basically said, "Oh, if we get as much distribution as possible, then we could tell any story." Or stars. Yeah. In other words, HBO invented its own stars. Jim Gandolfini was not a star. Right. You know. In other words, I think. But you found. But you had the HBO. Had I the didn't eye for work the in that area, but I think that HBO, because it was under budgeted compared to network at the time, because it was subscription, which was a new kind of programming uh, model. I think they had to start with scratch and build it, which is really the most exciting way to build. But how do you how do you think HBO, and and you see this throughout the history of art over the past one thousand years, and I feel HBO has its role in, in in television. Again, everybody that does original programming across the whole television universe now, at some point either was at HBO or is connected to HBO in some way. So so how do the, and it reminds me, it's like Paris in the 20s where you had, <laughs> you know, Hemingway and Fitzgerald yeah, yeah. and John Joe's Passos, all these people. No or, vaginas, I might add. It, no vaginas. Oh, well, Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein, yeah. yeah and, well, uh, a very special kind of vagina. Yeah. And then you had, you know, uh, the village in the 50s with, with, with art, uh, but there's there, there's these very kind of uh, select places that become these nexuses. Do you think that HBO helped burgeon your talent? Yeah, absolutely. I learned so much from HBO. What did you learn? I learned a to to talent comes first. Quality become is you if you always if you always respect talent, even without understanding what the business causes, then then the business will follow. But you know what the other thing is? You don't know where talent is. But I think I it think... doesn't necessarily come from a big time agent in Hollywood. Talent can also come from someone coming into your. I mean, Alexandra Pelosi, Journeys with George. Film Journeys with George was rejected by everybody. She sent it everywhere. It arrived on someone's desk at HBO, and they said, "Ah, eh, some girl on a plane with you know." I said, "Let me look at it." Um, came in the mail. Alexander Pelosi sent her, I think that's one of the great documentaries at Journeys with George. It's, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was in the mail. You never know. You just don't know. Um, we did a film about a kid who, uh, shit, I can't remember his name, but he decided to go to a assisted living place and live in one of the rooms and watch the death, um, and the loss and the recovery of the elderly people in that place. Um, what is it called? Room something something. The number of his room. But it was, um, I thought it was a great documentary. Because who, you go to a consistent living place, you go to one of those old age places, you're going to visit someone who's your relative. You bring them ice cream, and you try to forget it, right? Try to forget that you might be there one day. He stayed there. He made this film. And and again, I think it that was brings a great film. that brings this incredibly yeah. high stakes story that most people ignore or avoid yes. in their lives. Yes. You brought it to life. Well, and he brought it to life, but I mean, he brought it to us and said he wanted to so do HBO it. HBO brought and we it to life. Yes, HBO brought it to life because we had the money and the experimental nature to try it. Not so, everything works, right? So that experimental nature and, and kind of that 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 edge that that edge that HBO always had. That sort of now has defined original programming across so. all of television. I mean, then you look at all the again, 
all of the ex HBO people, like like Chris Albrecht now running Stars. Right. Everybody has yeah. ended up somewhere uh-huh. running something. Uh-huh. And Except me. I'm in the same place. Well, well, yes, but you're still <laughs> you're 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 like the the last person from the original HBO. I'm still, the last one standing. <laughs> still creating the HBO brand. And and what would you attribute the what was HBO's secret sauce? I think it was not having enough cash to really put a lot of money into programming, which would it make it Netflix a very interesting contrast. Having less sometimes gives the audience more. Having less is I'm not saying you should not eat uh, three meals a day, but I'm just saying having to deal with the nothingness of your presence that nobody knows who you are makes you focus much better than everybody knowing who you are. So it's like this underdog kind of like... It's an underdog It's an underdog um, development process. Because think about... Where also- talent can come anywhere. You know, you look at an e- a bunch of emails. 35 of them are like people are known and blah, blah, blah. And then there's some kid who writes an idea and you think, hey, you know, that kid's smart. I want to meet that person. Um it could pan. It might not happen, but chances are, in a developed environment and developed network, you're not going to get a chance to make that kids' film, even if it's a good idea anymore, because now HBO is established. We're part of the establishment. But I, th- I think though, there's still this feeling that HBO so first. HBO is such a home for great talent and such a true. discoverer of great talent that I think there's still an HBO premium that actors are willing to. To, or or the writers or any like look at and and this isn't on the on the documentary side but think about like the Larry Sanders show in the nineties just all of the amazing talent that came out of that like you have Bob Odenkirk yes you know yes, who's on yes, Better yes. Calls Better Calls that Call was Saul. Michael's reign right and and or Judd Apatow was just a a writer in the writers room of the Larry Sanders show now he's the, now he's doing a documentary about Larry Sanders oh you're kidding I didn't even know that yeah he is oh that's amazing you talked to him yeah. He's and well, really and of course, he's it. done yeah. a billion comedy movies that are the billion, billion. The, the biggest in the world. Yeah, all uh, Sarah Silverman was in that. Gar- yeah. Of course, Gary Shandling, John John Stewart. The Daily Show came out of the Larry Sanders Show. So it was because it was direct because yeah. it, we we only saw him as a. I think a, you should get a job at HBO. Hmm? I think you should come back to HBO. <laughs> you know, um, you know what? It, why don't you just buy it? <laughs> <laughs> well, now it's worth twenty billion. It's still expensive. I thought so, that's what you were worth. So, so new, shit, you mean I came all the way down here early and you're not even worth twenty billion? <laughs> News Corp. Darn. Tried, News Corp. tried to buy Time Warner just for HBO. Right. So I mean, what else? Oh, is, that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but we have Vice now. We have other brands. We have Sesame Street. We uh, I didn't know out. that, actually. Yeah, we have Vice, Sesame Street. We have other people's brands. Are you happy with that? What do you think? I, I think HBO is good as HBO. I only think of HBO. And I think, and again, you asked what I learned. I think it's I think it's a business school question. Talent. I think somebody has to really, I mean, I really do think it's a very interesting thing, which is do you get so big that you lose your initial um, experimental self? Or can you hold on to it? I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I think I should go. To, you think it's too late to go to business school? I'd like to know whether you built. Do worthwhile. you think you you went there? No. Okay. So how do you know? Good, do you good, build good a question. brand? Do you build a brand from the inside up, or do you build a brand in a mature atmosphere, which it is now, a media atmosphere, by getting brands and putting them in? I I don't know. It's been very successful by buying other brands, but every time. You buy another brand, I get a pain in my chest. So, so because I, think, I want the brand to come 
from inside. I want right. it to be inborn. I think it's know? just personally what your goal is. So yeah, I guess, if your goal I is guess. you're the head of a company and you want yeah. to quickly build it and make a lot of money, you buy successful brands. And, 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 and name talent. And name talent. There are two kinds of talent. So there's Netflix developing talent and then there's name talent. Developing talent is different from name talent. Developing talent, I, you know, that was what HBO did. They went to clubs and found, you know, Sarah Jessica Parker playing a dog in a movie off in a, in a play. I don't know if it was a Manhattan Theater Club, but I remember Chris coming back and saying, you know, that he'd seen this actress, and you know, that was so many years ago. But yeah, and, and you know, yeah. we went out. We were talent scouts. And Chris Albrecht, right? Wasn't he? He was like. Uh the doorman at the comedy store in in LA when when he started out so he had an eye for comedic talent and of course some of the best you know comedy series of history have been on HBO uh because of Chris Albrecht you had your eye for talent complicated complicated man Yes, I mean maybe everyone. So Michael Fuchs is a complicated, complicated man. Very complicated. So so that's another thing about but HBO. It, but but I mean it was it's Michael's dream if he had been um Able to play the corporate game, he it would have been. A, he, he would probably still be there. He probably should never have made the leap to Warner Music. Never, Cause, never. Because Jeff Lucas did a good job too. But Jeff was a financial guy. Michael was a more of an idea guy. I, I think the original HBO, and I've told this to Michael, although I don't know that he believes it. Um, the original HBO was Michael's spirit, his sense of irreverence, his you know talk back. Uh, his ethnicity, uh, that's where it, it started from. And I think, you know, you could badger him into your idea. You could go in there and say, I want to do one survivor. And he'd say, all right, all right, do it, you know. It's different, different world. Brain games. But but again, he you know? <laughs> he he was a developer of talent in, yes, in the sense was. of you, yes, he was. Chris Albrecht, yes. other people. Yes. I, think, I think it was always HBO's top-down focus on... When talent walks in the door, whether you're developing it or it's already out there, you just it's you treat it with the highest respect, and everything else will follow. But you know, there's a real question, which is talent that's not known or talent that's known. I think he did. I think you all did both. Yeah, I think that's true. But the talent that's not known is of greater interest to me than the talent that's known. And, and then you take that talent and you just push it to the edge. Yes, you, you push and it you a little further. And you see if it further. can perform for you. You know, it's even, but but I think stars are problematic because um, it's never enough for a star. It's it was great to watch Gandolfini. You know, this is a guy who didn't really have any small parts come in and become Tony, and um, he was an unusual man. He was an unusual, talented, gifted man who cared about the world. And everybody thought he was Tony. Some great story there about a man who everyone thinks is Tony Soprano when he's really a teddy bear. You know, wherever you would go, because he did a lot of docus for us, he had a great affection for the war vets. And he went to Iraq. He did all kinds of things that nobody knew anything about. And we once went to Walter Reed, and there was a, a guy who had his head sort of blown off. We were looking for our story, which eventually became um, a live day. Uh, yeah, live day. And um, we went into this room, and there was this woman reading a Bible over her kid who I couldn't really see his face. It was like half of it was bandaged, half of it was gone. And um, she said, oh, she said, my son loves you. He watches your show all the time. 
you know, I mean, he was nearly dead. And she said, tell him he's going to get better. So Jim started to tell him, I mean, there was no camera. This was like television, but it wasn't television. It was life. Jim started to talk to him like Jim. So he said, come on, fella. You can get better. You know, your mom's reading the Bible. and You fought for our country. You're a great guy. And she said, no, not that one. The other one. So he looked at me and I said, I want you to do, do Tony, you know. I mean, he knew. So then he sort of like got into character and he said, listen, you motherfucker, you know, your mother's out there suffering. You think you're such a big shot because you fought for America. Get the fuck out of bed. Get better, you schmuck, you know, and all that. And she smiled the whole thing. And then he signed her Bible and he walked out of the room and he started to cry hysterically in the hallways of Walter Reed because, you know, he, 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 first of all, it was not a good thing to look at. And second of all, the kid, he didn't know it at the time, but the kid was going to die three days later. He sent three food baskets and hats and all kinds of things to that room, but it didn't matter. The kid died. And when I told him, you know, that, that the, the young man had died, he cried. He was a really feeling good, wonderful man, but I don't know why I'm telling you that story, except that that was one of the great scenes of real life that wasn't captured. Well, and I think also you're expressing how HBO built this relationships with the talent it developed, so you're able to bring them into all of these other stories. Yes, that's true. James Gandolfini wasn't was was uh, HBO built this amazing loyalty among its talent. Yes, James Gandolfini being a great yes. example. We were all at his father's funeral. I remember looking around and thinking, everybody's here. Edie, David Chase, you know, all the big shots are in this little funeral parlor in New Jersey with this little man sitting there dead, paying our respects to James. I mean, we were real people. We're real people. And so, we're so, not fancy. So, so that brings us to, to your book, which I'm going to title again, yeah. You Don't Look Your Age and Other Fairy Tales. And you, this is where you tell your stories. And well, I try to hide some of them. So, so after, after like, just how you were describing like stories as you're just walking home right. down Madison Avenue, mm-hmm. it's like you see stories everywhere. Everywhere. And and I don't think most people do that. I think it's a very special skill that you've developed for yourself, and you're able to then then with this book, these this is a great collection of stories, and some <laughs> of them are like you you sort of fictionalize some of them. You get the sense that everything is. Um, Either a hundred percent true or mostly true, and I think you 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 fictionalize some true stories, and and you're a great short story writer. But also, some stories are are totally nonfiction. You call yourself Sheila as the character in the story, and um, uh, uh, the first one is about grasping: should you, as you age, get plastic surgery or not? And this kind of has become a, a defining story of this book. I mean, that's the story you see mentioned in in a lot of places, and I think women grapple with that. Everywhere and you t- and it, and you being honest, like you you say throughout the book that honesty is kind of your most important quality that you've you know I cultivated. think I could lie if I could remember that I had one. <laughs> the trouble with my memory, even when I had a perfect memory, was that if I did take the cookie out of the cookie jar, I couldn't not say that I had because I, I, I had cookie crumbs on my fingers. I'm always caught if I try to make something up. So I think there's that, and also there's just I don't know. You you took ownership 
of your creativity, which is what I thought back in back in the day, 20 years ago, seeing you make an opinion on what people want to see and what people don't want to see, what is a good story and what isn't. You took ownership that this is your beliefs and you're going to stick by them. And then once you took that ownership, of course you're not going to be afraid to say anything because this is it. This is the word. And also you know when people are bored. You know when someone's bored and you know when you're looking at a film when it's boring. And I, I think boredom is like a pain. It's like someone stabbing you. I can't bear to be bored. Can you? No. Boredom is the worst. So what's going to happen in a world where, where like my kids, they, they get How bored even looking they? at three-minute YouTube videos? How, how's the, an hour-long format going to survive? You have to ask Darwin. What are they going to evolve into? Are they going to become robots or are the robots going to become them? I don't know. I don't know. I think it's scary. Does it change the way you view um, programming at HBO? Yes, very much so. So, yeah. so okay. So if the- you look at Sesame Street from 10, 20 years ago and you look at it today, it's like this now, you know? Um, I can't even imagine because I haven't seen it in 40 years, 45 yeah, well, years. <laughs> it's, it's um, you know, I don't know. The world is going so fast. And yet we have more time on it. We live longer. But then again, it goes so fast. I'm not sure you grasp it in time. I don't know the answer. And then, you know, you're also a great example of, and and you say maybe it's uh, sometimes a negative example, but you look, you've risen in the workplace and in the entire industry, not just in the workplace, but in the industry. You've cre- I think you are over-exaggerating my no, success. I, but no, because here's you where awards... You probably haven't here, seen my paycheck. Here... Here's where awards are important because that the, the the industry itself has awarded you like a billion zillion yeah, awards. Yeah, but, but I've been around a long time. Yeah, but you know, not that being around a long time is is uh, hard to do. It's hard to do. Let me tell you. I mean, that, that's why I wanna I wanna look at your your Nevin's uh, five rules for success. In okay, that, good. That, you know, so one is of course be really good at your job. That is obvious, but not right. so easy. It's no. obvious, but not easy. Not yet, and How you can't be so good. How many hours your life? Yeah, because like you're walking home on Madison Avenue, you're seeing every oh, story. Oh, I had three in every ideas block. on the way home. Yeah, and so three ideas. I saw the, the woman with the the African American woman with the white baby talking in another language on the phone, and the baby was like, you know, not looking for attention. I saw that. I saw the guy with the drugs, and then you know what else I saw? I saw that walking home from 76 and Madison Avenue, which I hadn't done in a long time, was harder for me at this stage than it had been the last time I'd done that walk 20 years ago. And I thought, you can't deny decline. So I had three thoughts on the way home. And it was only 15 blocks. So it's good it wasn't 30 blocks. I'd bore you to death now. But you know, you, you can't, you know, you realize the decline, but you also, in your, in your book of stories here, you realize the decline. I kept walking. <laughs> no, but maybe, maybe the decline happens in different ways, but the first story, again, is about looks and plastic surgery, and that's a form of decline as well. You know, it's so interesting you say that, because when I got to Lexington and 86th Street, I live on York and 86th, there was a taxi, and he saw me kind of struggling across the marble street of 86 because they're building and fixing and all that. And he said, lady, want a taxi? And I said, no, thank you. But I wanted a taxi, but I didn't want to take it. I didn't want to give up. I walked home, and by the time I got to the door, Dorman said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I just took a long walk. But, I mean, I walked like three miles, and um, I used to be able to run three miles. So, I, I can't run three miles. How do you run three miles? I can't anymore. <laughs> Well, so I'm so I've declined 
<laughs> most faster than you. That's why I want to talk to Darwin. So I no, want to ask him if there are any exceptions to the rules of decline. Do you know where he is? No, because oh, he's dead. Oh, <laughs> he declined. Damn, damn, he declined. Yeah, so, I know. So, so then your number You know, he lost his son. Do you know the story of Darwin? Someone should no. do that. Uh, did Walter Isaacson write the book? Someone wrote Somebody the book. Somebody wrote a book, but it seems like it's a great movie. Because here's uh, a Paul man. Johnson wrote the book. Oh, did? Him. Yeah. His son died, and he couldn't accommodate to that death. You know, died of like tuberculosis in those times. But uh, he saw man evolving, but he couldn't cure illness. But you know, and again, yeah. I'm going to relate that to your book. Yeah. You have a, a beautiful story when you start to realize your own son, as a baby, he was blinking too much. And Clearing his throat. <coughs> doctors didn't Tourette's. know. You, doctors weren't telling you anything. They didn't know anything. And your own research, yeah. you know, kind of uncovered that he had Tourette's and, and, and so on. And yeah. so I think yeah. that was a beautiful you story. You know, it was also interesting. I had a really bad toothache because about pain. And I had gone and I, I needed root canal. At least that's what the dentist said. And I did eventually have it. But I was in the dentist's office waiting for my root canal treatment when I read in some magazine, I think it was Family Circle, about the signs of Tourette's. And I realized David had Tourette's. And I, there was the name of a doctor and the name of an organization in Astoria called the Tourette's Association. And so I called there, no cell phones then, but I, my tooth didn't hurt anymore mm. because I was so other-directed from my own self that, you know, I really cared more about him than I did about my tooth. And so look at what you about just... pain. Look, but, but also look what you just did. Yeah. You reversed decline for that moment you were in the dentist's office. Yes, yes. So maybe I reversed decline. Thinking maybe of compassion others, yeah. is a reversal of decline. So as much as you want well, to look at maybe. the darkness, yeah. but finding the compassion in that darkness... Versus decline. This is we're, we're too, solving. This, this could be too deep. We're so, we're solving this decline could be here. Too deep. This could be too deep. So so <laughs> number. You're, well, now we'll get to your number two. And by the way, in your book too, I want to mention just because you mentioned the Darwin story, I didn't yeah. know that about his his child. You have two other stories where you're comforting, or you tell the story of a woman yeah. who loses her child, and so this is kind of a, a topic and you know who for you. reads that on the audiobook is Gloria Vanderbilt. Who lost a child? The audiobook is interesting, and I'm really not selling it because I don't care anymore. But I, but I, I didn't have the guts to ask Gloria to read that story, and she called me up at work and she said, "Darling, I read your book. I love your book." She's 93. I said, "Oh, will you read one of the stories?" And she said, "I'll read the one about adultery." And I said, oh, "Okay." And uh, when I got to her house, she hadn't yet decided to read the other story. And then she said, you want me to read the one about the death of a child, don't you? Because she had lost a child. And I said, well, if you want to. And she said, I will. So she read the adultery one in the most salacious, leaning across. We did it at her home. Across at the audio man, who's a rather reserved person, you know. She said, I was the elephant in the room. You know, She was so seductive. And then she said, hold my hand, I'll read the other story. And she read the one about the death of a child. But I never could have asked her. Mm. But she was smart enough to know that I'd sent her the book for that story. Well, and that's the you interesting know. thing, by the way, about the audiobook is that you have all these amazing people read different I stories. I know, and I did them. it. I just called them. I never paid them. I never used an agent. I never used a manager. I just did it. And I think that is oh, the secret of HBO. That's tough, the secret tough. of HBO, though. I think in many ways, yes. Because I took the same chutzpah that I had used for my stories, and I thought, this is a great story for Glenn Close. I saw her in a restaurant. 
I'm going to find out when she's going to be there again. I found out when she was there again. I know her a little bit. I know all these people a little bit from being in the business for so long. She was going to Glasgow. I learned how to Skype. Well, sort of learned how to Skype. And I Skyped her, and we did a story. with. She read the one about the death of a dog because um, I knew she liked pets and stuff. And Judith Light read the one about facelifts, which is very, very brave, I thought. And Diane von Furstenberg won the... You read the one about not fitting into clothes the way you used to fit into them anymore. I tried to match them, but Meryl Streep was the best story of all because I was scared to, scared. But I thought, what the hell? Why don't I go for broke? So outside her door, I put uh, the galley of the book and a note. And I, hadn't, I didn't hear anything. I didn't expect to hear anything. Outside actually, her door, like, where does she live? She has, tri- <laughs> no, no, Tribeca, she has an office uh-huh. in Tribeca. And I was there for the film festival. And I'd seen her name on the door, you know, whatever. So I left the book with a letter inside. And then about six weeks later, I get a letter in the mail, a little pile of letters on the, you know, table. And one says M. Streep. And I don't I don't identify M. Streep with Meryl Streep because I, I just don't. It's Meryl Streep, Meryl Streep, Meryl Streep. So I open it. I open the other things. I don't open that first. I open it. On the top, it says Meryl Streep. It says, I love your book. Women need this book. Um, I want to read the one about your mother. Where, when, XOXO, Meryl. I went screaming in the hallway at HBO. <laughs> of course, someone said to me, are you sure it's not a joke? I said, no, it's our stationery. <laughs> but see, again, so I ready? think <laughs> that approach is a very HBO approach. And I think I think it it's HBO's special relationship with talent. No yeah. one leaves HBO and says, oh, that was the worst place to do any project. Like they do with every other channel and network. I hope. Like, <laughs> HBO really does, like, cultivate these relationships yes, it and it does. focuses again on the yes, top it down. Does. So, I, I want to get to your second rule, though, of of succeeding in the workplace for women, which is re- remember to look down. So Look down? So, yeah, that's what you say. You look for cracks in the sidewalk. A crack in the sidewalk can trip you. It is always good to look down every so often, otherwise you might fall. Well. Maybe in good. the workplace you meant always remember where you came from. Not sure what I meant. I think I meant um, don't get too high, high and mighty. All right, that's a good one. <laughs> no, know your frenemy is oh number my three, God, very and you talk cool. about this in the book too. Know your frenemy, yes. Very you have cool. a, a list of ways to define frenemy, which is which oh, was fascinating. I know how to define a frenemy. A frenemy loves you too much. I know frenemies. I have frenemies. And and I like how it was things I wouldn't have thought of. Like they say, oh, you look younger every year. Oh, and you look good in gray hair. You mm-hmm. look good with gray hair. Or every year you look younger and younger. Or they forget to leave you off an email. That's the real key. Somehow, what do you do with a frenemy? How do you, how do you battle Oh, frenemy? you're so nice. You remember their birthday, their kids' birthdays, and you smile. You even have lunch with them. You're phony. And that will work. <laughs> that will diffuse them. I haven't read their book. I think it works. <laughs> All right. That's good. Uh, stay honest. It's number four. As best you can. Yeah. As best you can. I mean, I'm pretty honest. Yeah. Stay honest or don't say anything. It's good not to say anything sometimes. When people know you and you don't say anything, they know you disapprove. Mm. You know, if... Like if, what's an example in... in, in I mean, let's say you don't want to do a particular project that's being presented to you by a superior person. So I don't mean superior as a person, but superior to your position. Uh, you just don't acknowledge the pitch. You just stare and you listen. But if you love it, you say something. And if you don't love it, you say nothing. 
Nothing is something in corporate America. And Especially why, if they're used to you talking. And saying, right. oh, oh, that's so great. I can't wait to do that. What if we did this? What if we get this person to shoot it? What if we do it? But if the person knows your rhythm and you're just suddenly silent, you know, kind of looking upstairs and, you know, accidentally checking your watch to see, you know, it's a good way to do it. And then, and then uh, no, rule number five, I think is pretty important. Uh, wear comfortable shoes. Yes, always wear comfortable shoes. But, but I think there's more to it, which is <laughs> be comfortable. Be comfortable. And you know what the main one is, and I don't think I put it there, don't be intimidated by someone else's success. They're in it with you. Because I guess that has there, to happen. Everybody's an x-ray away or a trip in the sidewalk away or a moment away from pain or tragedy. I really do believe that. And I think we're all in that together. The laughter is what's in between the cracks, really. The rest of it is trying to survive in a difficult, impossible world for a reason you don't know. Do you know why you're here? No. Well, it's impossible to survive not knowing. Don't you always want to know? You ask questions, you want an answer. Well, why are you here? What's the purpose of it all? I, I almost think it's a luxury to ask the question because it's a lot. Because there is so much I'm thinking about my kids, my own survival, the survival yeah. of the, the thing people about around kids me. Is, the thing about kids is, the great thing about kids, the bad thing is that you give up your life. The good thing is you love them more than yourself. Yeah. I mean, if someone opened the door and said, there were six of us lined up and there were my kids, I'd say, take the other five, but save my kid. Shoot Sheila's me. choice. Shoot me. <laughs> Sheila's choice. <laughs> it wasn't Sophie's. Yeah. So, yeah. so... Uh, Sheila Nevins, I don't want to take up more of your time. I love this. this. I this, thought you made me think so hard. I actually have a slight sort of headache from this, thinking. It, You're like it's like a philosophy of you, Sheila. You don't you don't realize it, but you were one of my greatest mentors that I actually knew in person. You're a great person in the industry. You've changed television. You don't you'll deny it and be humble, but you. I'm not you, humble, but I do deny that I changed television. How could you deny that? Like I can't tell you how <laughs> I can deny it. I just do. I don't think you know. I don't. I don't. Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. You you're li like. Don't compare me to Eli Whitney. No. I don't know what he looked like. No. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're you're the reason I I went to HBO. I'll tell you a story. No, are I, you madly in love with me? Would I, you I, be my baby? <laughs> I I remember I had two job offers. One at J.P. Morgan. This is 1990, whatever. Yeah. One at J.P. Morgan for eighty thousand dollars a year. Uh. One at HBO for forty thousand dollars a year. And I loved Taxi Cab Confessions so much. I went to HBO. So I owe you $35,000. 40000 yes, a year. Wait, no, eighty five. So I owe no, you 40000 80 to 40. As you can tell, I'm very good at math. I owe you $40,000. Yeah, a year, ever Would since you take 19... Monopoly money? Ever since 1994. <laughs> I won't okay. take Monopoly money. So I owe you $45,000? 40. 40. See, Time, I forgot already. Times 20 years. Times 20 so years is how much? 800000 Oh, to you, that's peanuts. That doesn't mean anything. $800,000? I'll write you a check. I'll write you a check outside. Okay. So, so, and will you I pay would, taxes on the money that I owe you? Maybe, but you're so clever, you'll figure out a way to invest it in something. Well, we're all, <laughs> we're all, we're, you're Jewish, right? We're all Jewish. So, uh, don't be anti Semitic now. I uh, know, uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> uh, that's pro Semitic. We're smart with taxes. You know what? Somebody said something interesting to me. I said, Why are so many Jews in real estate? And that's some, and this person who's a big real estate tycoon said to me, Of course, we're in real estate. Nobody would let us own anything. We had to keep moving. 
It's interesting, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. No, a big a big it, chunk you know, of uh of Jews and real a big chunk of real estate industries and banking industries is because of the regulations against Jews for course, hundreds of and years. The, and the Sephardic nature of not being able to own anything. Yeah. So land was something to own as, you know, sort of sad. But maybe it makes sense. That's created history. Yeah. Like is. like anything, it's the the crack in the sidewalk. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out why people hate Jews. Why anti Semitism is on the rise. I can't quite get my hands around it. I don't know either. I don't understand why. I don't understand where it came from. It's not like there were Jews in power. So well, why? they think they think that there are. If you look at like that, but why today? Sense. But why today and not ten years ago? Why is anti-Semitism come back, or is it just that hate is let out of the closet because of the environment we live in? I, I think a little bit the internet too allows anybody to express their opinion, and these. But why has that to form. opinion crested? I I don't know if it's gone up or always been there. Oh, interesting. Like, I've gotten hate We just now. hear it more. We hear it more now than I mean, ever before. You get hate? I, I look very Jewish, right? So yeah. You do? I, I've gotten... I do. And uh, You look like a mad genius. <laughs> well, which maybe is a way of looking Jewish. <laughs> uh, but I would. I get also... I you get know, you email. could blow your hair straight. Nobody would know. Uh, I, I like it curly. Have you ever had it straight? No. Only when it's short. So when it's really short, it's I've, really great hair. It's the same hair I have, but see mine straight because I blow it. Well, I have the identical hair to you. Yeah? I could look, yeah, identical. So you could have that man genius look. I could have that look, yeah. Well, and, I don't need to have the look. I actually am one, so I don't need the look. That's, that's true, right? <laughs> I, maybe I need the look. You so. need the look. You want to be. <laughs> well, and and you're. You want me to blow dry your hair before <laughs> this is over? No. You sure? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet you look cute. I like it the way it is. I, like, I do too. I think it's adorable. But I'm just telling you, we have the same hair. And I, this yeah. is related to a conversation we have right before the podcast. I like having gray hair now, like some gray hair, because then you can, it's like I'm a little yeah, more distinguished. A man with gray hair is taken seriously. A woman with gray hair is an older woman. I agree. I think it's different. It's not fair. Yeah, it's not it's fair. Not fair. I, but fair. it is how it is, and and I and is, I think yeah. you have to. I, if you told me when I was twenty five that I would dye my hair, I would have said that's horrible. I would never do that. I would just you know, if you told me at twenty five I was going to have a facelift, I would say, "Who are you kidding?" I would never do that. Um, I think that's different for men too. Like men, I think with with more with wrinkles, also still look distinguished. Yes, there, but there is no distinguished word for a woman. What would be the word? Distinguished means man. You never say a woman is distinguished unless she's, you know, wearing a man's suit. So what would be the equivalent word for a woman for distinguished? Yeah, I don't know. There isn't. Yeah. Older woman is the closest you get. Handsome. Or handsome. But it's not, it doesn't come with pretty. Right. Whereas distinguished comes with good looking. Yeah, handsome. A woman inherits the word handsome with age. <laughs> yeah, but it's not an attractive word. And it's a man's word anyway. Yeah. A woman is not discreet. You didn't say, I met a handsome woman unless she was stout and wearing a suit. If you said, I met a handsome man, you could mean Clark Gable. It's not fair. I told you. It all it's goes not, back to vagina. You not, see? We're back fair, where but, we started from. But it also is, is to your brain because <laughs> then I was really surprised and pleasantly surprised that your your book was so well written. What was like, your what was your favorite? Well, I'm not stupid. I went to Barnard. I went I, to Yale. No, but you know what? what it's hard want? to write a good book, and you and it's hard to write. This writing is a hard skill. It wasn't hard. I I, I think it's because of so, your attention to story uh, throughout the years and the decades allowed you to really sort of understand the rhythm of, oh, that's of writing. It was like, not hard because there's a rhythm in the writing. 
I was surprised that my dialogue was so good. And when I had these well-known actresses read it, I, uh, I, I thought, God, I write good dialogue. I mean, like, you know, the one about the kid who dies of a drug overdose, when, when um, Ellen Burstyn read that, everybody started to cry, except me. I was like saying, oh, this is who great. wrote that? <laughs> I wrote that? Whoa, where have I been? This is a good story. And the poor kid is dead, and the woman is crying, and Ellen is crying, and the control room guy is crying. And it, you know... It was interesting. Was Maybe it ha- in my was, next was, life. Was it? Hard, did you write every day? I'm just curious. Was this all, all put together over years or every weekend? I wrote a story until I with the 46 weekends or however many stories I wrote 46. Days. And I never didn't know what I was going to write. Uh, I spent you, the whole week thinking of what I was going to write. Let and me then ask that you a weekend I would write it the, on my the, iPad. I wrote everything on an iPad. Really? Everything. Oh my God! That's then transferred it to Word. That's but insane. I wrote, yeah, writing on an I iPad. I am insane. Yeah. <laughs> so I would never write on an iPad. I write. <laughs> well, write I write every computer. single day, and on, I write on this laptop. What's the difference? On an iPad, that has those keys. You can't. Yeah. I, oh, I. I know. I can't them. do it. I'm so used to them. Come on. Uh, you're like a like millennial. A <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so the story about adultery. Yes. Uh, you're on a train, and yes. you hear two women talking, right. and then. The one woman goes off for coffee, and the other woman calls the woman's husband, and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. Things happen. But no, the other woman is sleeping with the other woman's husband. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. But we find that out when the other, the other woman goes to coffee. Now, do you think most— People think it's true? Is that is that uh, a true conversation you overheard? I don't know. Is it? <laughs> it felt it felt it, it scared me. Like, are most women? If I ever get married again, is this? Uh, I'll work on that. I'll work on that. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no. So that's the question. Do you think? Do you think? I think women are more most, adulterous now than they used to be. Yeah. Do you think most people are adulterous? Yes. Hmm. Yes, I think it's. Were you when you were married? No, never. Well, you were married so short times. No, I was married for ten years and then five years. Oh. But you're a kid and you have a lot of interests. I think most people, I don't know about most, that's stupid. I think it's a temptation that is uh, obvious, sometimes necessary, and uh, I wouldn't say an epidemic. I would say it's uh, very possible. I don't think it necessarily shows unhappiness. I think the interesting thing about that story about adultery is I read it to a group of women. No, they read it to me. Two women read it. And of the audience of, let's say, 50, 60, about 40 thought that the woman who went to get the coffee knew that the other woman was having an affair with her husband. And that's why she forgot to sweeten low. When she comes back with the coffee, she just brings her the cream. She forgets to sweeten low. Mm. But she knows. Mm. She knows that the, that woman is sleeping with her husband. I know, but only women think that. That's and so I was funny. so surprised because I didn't think that That's when I wrote it. I didn't think it when I wrote it. But if 40 out of 60 women, women thought it, then they'd either been in the situation on one side or the other, because not in the story. And, you know, it's not in the story. It's in their minds, you know? You, you, you asked me my favorite story in, in the book, but, I'll, but before I say it, I, I like the endings of all your stories because <laughs> uh, uh, not that it's over, but that... You had a good way of sort of rhythmically bringing it back, like you know, in that one. Uh, trust me, and I. Do he trust won't like you. my blouse. Yeah, so, I do trust you. And yeah. but my favorite is probably the woman who um, is is struggling with an addict son oh. and um, decides to take a tough love approach, and then the results of that. That's happen. the one that Ellen Burstyn read. Yes. Yeah, and then yeah, and that was really sad. The way you end it is really punctuates the the sadness, and, that, and, that, and that's where words have power. Yeah. And that there's a skill to writing. And 
uh, you know, obviously you're a heavy reader or something because you had you, there's a there's a skill to putting those words together that way. Really? Yeah, there definitely is. I'm not really aware of it. Well, I think it's because you're 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 so you're so aware of story and you're and you. Well, I mean, a movie has an ending. An a docu has an ending. Maybe I had to end things. But 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 a docu doesn't deal with words. Um, no. You still have to have that skill with putting words together. Yeah. yeah there, Do you a think I should? Ending. You think I should write another book? Yeah, totally. I can't. You can't. I just can't do it anymore. I can't sell myself. You have to sell a book. You have to sell it. You don't have to sell your books because they're for the mind. This is for women, and they want to hear the stories, and they want to talk about them. And you have to go out and talk and sell them like you. 60 people come to Barnes & Noble, and five people buy a book. You know, it's like so strange. You but feel it's for so you, though, you write the book. Oh, I guess that's true. But I'm too selfish. <laughs> no, I want to, I wanna, anything I do, I want to do well. So I want to be able to feel that I'm commercially successful writing a book. But I don't know that that's possible without really push. And at some point, you just can't do it anymore. But, but I've met great women. Great, great, great women. One man said to me, I know this is over, so it doesn't matter. man said to me, I'm buying this book for my mother. I said, oh, how nice. Very few men are online. And I said, oh, how nice. What's her name? He said, Frida. I said, I-E-E-I, -E -E you know everybody. He said, I-E. So I wrote, dear Frida, you couldn't have a lovelier son. And they said, oh, thank you. And then I said, you know, are you going to give it to her for Mother's Day? And he said, no, my mother's dead. And I said, oh, are you going to see her again? You know, I don't know what he believes. Strange guy, little, you know, pants underneath his chest, you know, way up high. And a little stainy, but very sweet guy. And he said, no, he said, I buy things that my mother would have liked. And I put them all together. And then I feel like she's there. See, and that's a story. It's so it's just, sweet. Right, right. So You're always sweet. on the lookout for stories. <laughs> he so has, he's, he's, his pants are a little stainy. Like you're no, observing but everything. I mean, I mean, the buckle was underneath his chest. And he had a little bit of a chest. You know, when men are fat, they have a little bit of a chest. And his pants were big. And, um, you know. But build it, you he building, was a story. You building that picture of the man yeah. right now. Yeah. And then ending it with the way this kind of quirky uh, relationship he has with his dead mother and objects. Isn't that weird. It's but this, that's all connected. But isn't that, that itself love? Is a story. Isn't that about love? That that is, and that's and think, isn't that interesting in terms of uh, objects? Nobody ever thinks about that. You think of relics and things, and you don't know what they mean to people because they don't mean anything to you. But you begin to understand. I mean, I didn't come from a family where anyone could leave me jewelry or this is my mother's this or my mother's that. I mean, she had no fingers anyway. But the thing was. The oh, that was another that beautiful he, story, by the way, Raynaud's, about your mother. Raynaud's, that's the one that, that um, Meryl Streep read. I didn't know about that about you, actually, and yeah. your mother. Yeah, it was very sad. But anyway, this... My, my mother had polio, so I related to that did. story. She and, wasn't and, one of the last people to have it. Is she alive now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's one she of the alive? last people. Yeah, one of the last people to have it. What, and she, what, and she's alive. What does she do? That, that uh, Well, she became a computer No, but woman. what in what way does polio manifest itself? Her, her legs swaks with... Uh, you know. She walks with flames. Yeah, yeah. See, that's why you're who you are. Well, and, and but I have related very much to the story how people would react and how I would react to it, horrible. how kids would react. Horrible. So horrible. Yeah. So horrible. But again, finding the story oh, and, and the sorry. love and yeah. everything is. Does is it hurt important. her? Does she hurt? Yes. Her? It still hurts her. Yeah. So she must have been one of the last people to get it. Yeah, really. yeah. We did a film about the last person in the Iron Lung. Did you ever see that film? No. Yeah, he's dead now. But he was probably the last person that ever was in an iron lung. It's a very touching story. See, see, so you started this 
podcast saying how attracted you were to, to darkness, but really what it is is you want to find the love inside that darkness. And that's what. But wait a and second. That translates to Your the mother HBO should brand. never have gotten polio in the first place. Had she been born ten years later, she wouldn't have gotten it, well, right? She would have gotten the sock vaccine. Well, then we life you will see? be different. Life will be different for everyone. So you can't say that's not a dark story. But it's it's that's that's a Can real. Can she story. get in and out of a bathtub by herself? I don't know, actually. You don't know that about your own mother? No. Does she have an aide at home? No. Have a husband? No. Dead? Yeah. You're, she probably takes showers. She has a walk-in shower. Yeah, yeah. So she probably takes the walker into the shower or leaves it outside and holds onto a bar. Is there a bar in the shower? You know, I can't picture it. You've got to find out. <laughs> All right, see? Let see, me know. So I'm a writer too, but you're <laughs> you're asking questions I don't know. I should know. So You're just not as observant as I am. Uh, maybe I'm observant in a different way. You're I think observant I'm, of numbers and money. No, no, because my if you read my my I'll send you one of my books. Would you I, please? I, I looked write, at them yesterday. They were lined up straight across the iPad page. I, so I wrote six books about money, right. but then the rest are about failure. What does and money mean suffering. to you? What does money mean to you? Love? No objects? No, nothing anymore. Safety? No no. Yeah, maybe safety. But safety from what? But when this is where the rest of my books come in is I write about failure and pain and how you get th and how in stories of getting through it and oh, that's like my driving force so and that's why I have these that's why I do this podcast what wh how many podcasts have you done so this will be this will probably be around episode 270 uh, is this the best of all of them I, absolutely oh okay. <laughs> I was just checking so because yeah. this is <laughs> You're you're probably the person I've known the longest who's been on this. I had one high school. Other friend than your mother, and you don't even know whether she takes a shower without help, She's and you don't even podcast. know if, you don't even know if she has a bar in the in the shower. Does she have a stand up shower in the bathroom? Just think I've about it. I've never been in her bathroom. To be honest, you have to pee when you visit your mother. <laughs> I go in the other room. There's she a bathroom. Has two bathrooms. Yeah. Well, I want to know. I'll find out. I want to know how people deal with their disabilities. We all are disabled in some way or another, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay, I get it. Well, Sheila, thanks so much. I had so much fun. It's, Thank you I, so first much. First time seeing you in, I guess, about 18 or 19 years. Yeah, and I look exactly the same. And you don't same. look your age. I, well, honey, <laughs> if, you had as much, if you had as much stitches as I did in your head. <laughs> and my hair isn't gray. And how do you I explain hair, that? Actually. How do you explain it? It must be natural, right? I, you know what? Everybody's got to do what everybody's got to do. Natural glue, natural dye. Right? Well, Total truth. I think I think that's why we wear clothes, too. We want to look our best all the time. I haven't changed my clothes. I told you I have this experiment. Sending today, you're lucky. I tried to wear the same thing for 30 straight days. Wash it every night, bra, panties, outfit, change accoutrements to grab them as I left. And I tried to do it for 30 days and see if anyone would notice. And nobody noticed. So I could really? have a uniform just like a man. I or have like spent Steve Jobs. Most, <laughs> yeah, but look what happened to him. I spent most of my life figuring out what I was going to wear. Oh, my God, I have to go to the thing on Friday. What am I going to wear? And I thought, this is ridiculous. Why don't I just wear the same thing and change a few things and fool everybody? And it worked. Well, It worked, except the trouble is if you're on enough red carpet things, you look like it's one red carpet. Oh, and all the pictures. Same thing, yeah. All the, on Google, Google Images has ruined yeah, this idea. Yeah, it's the idea. same idea, yeah. But if you change the accoutrements, then uh, you can get away with it. 
See, um, I do I do the same thing, but I just don't wash the clothes every day. Oh, you mean you stink? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> okay. So th thanks once again, Sheila. I'll come I'm again. So happy you came on. I had a write, fun time. Write another book. What so are you, you going to do? The, I'm never coming. Right. <laughs> what What do you do next? What's your next thing? What do you uh, do let, today? What's your day going to be? Uh, I'm First, you're gonna find out if your mother has a bar on the show. I'm gonna do another podcast. With who? Um, who are you doing? Amy Morin, who wrote 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do." Which oh, interesting. She wrote that after a series of tragedies in her life that oh, she really couldn't handle, yeah. and she had to figure this out. Did she did her book sell? Yeah, sold very well. What does "sell very well" mean? Well, selling very well means something different now than than anything. Because I mean, I don't know. The, I don't, I don't right? know the numbers, but. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, don't books, make money. Books don't, don't sell. Money. Books don't sell in general. Yeah, right. I mean, this podcast will have many more downloads than right. than mo than seventeen of my eighteen. So books. why do we write them? Because we love it. Because because there's poetry to yeah. words. Because words have power. And because it lasts. Yeah. In a strange way, it lasts, doesn't it? Yeah. And there's yeah. a kind of cultural uh, love for for books. You I mentioned books true. all throughout yeah, this yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, I think You're, that's true. Soon. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks, Sheila. Thank you. Bye. Oh, he's so cute. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed the show, then make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.